Hopefully you still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible, uh, just reach in the back of the pew. The, this uh, white paperback copy that looks like that one, uh, there should be a copy that's fairly close to you in the pew. And just go ahead and grab that and turn to page 478. 478 is where we'll be. If you take it out of the back of the pew in front of you, go ahead and take that home with you and consider it a gift from Parkview Baptist Church to you. Now, here's the deal. For those of you who aren't familiar with the way that we do things or haven't been here at Parkview or haven't been here in a long time, we uh, typically practice what's called expository preaching. I use words like that just so that you think that I'm smart, even though that I'm not really. Expository preaching, it's a big fancy word. It just basically means that we preach through long sections of the Bible verse by verse. We just go verse by verse through what Scripture says. Scripture, the reason that I tell you to turn in your Bible to where we're going to be is because that's what we do. We just take this passage of Scripture and walk through it and see what God has to say to us through His Word. We have a deep conviction that God has spoken to us directly in His Bible, in His Word. So when we read the Bible, we are reading the direct words from God. If anybody ever tells you that they say, well, you know, I'd, I'd pay attention to that if God spoke to me directly, all you have to do is hand them a copy of the Bible because He already has spoken to us directly. As a church, we've been walking our way through Matthew chapter 13, which is a list of stories or parables that Jesus told uh, explaining His kingdom and what His kingdom, how His kingdom was going to change the way that it looks on earth, the way that it's going to look, or the way that it at that time was going to look uh, in this age of the church. So that's where we are. That's a little bit about us. That's kind of how we do things here, just so you're not caught completely off guard by, by the way that we do things. So as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 13. We'll be in verses 47 uh, through 50 uh, this morning. Anybody in here ever use GPS besides like all of us? I think all of us use GPS. All of us, if you're directionally challenged like me, you use it more often than not. GPS is a fantastic tool, isn't it? But here's the thing about GPS. You know, with with GPS, especially with the way that smartphones are now, all you have to do is you just talk to the little woman that lives in that phone, and and you call her by name. I won't call her by name because phones will start, you know, like answering all over the place. But you call her by name, and she'll, she'll answer you. And, and you tell her where you want to go, and she'll load a map into that thing. Now, sometimes she gets confused. She gets confused because um, she really doesn't understand hillbilly very much, I don't think. So she gets confused by that. But also, she can get confused on different directions. Like for a long time, when, when you'd ask her to find Parkview Baptist Church, or to, we'd give our address, and you'd, you'd put the address in there. She would take you either to Joy Manufacturing up the road, or she'd take you over somewhere over here in Pine Hill Park. And people would get confused all the time. People get confused all the time. They plug in an address to somewhere back here, and they end up in our parking lot all the time. So I thought about just swapping those addresses, and maybe we'd, maybe we'd get everything straight. Not to call anybody by name or anything like that, but a couple of weeks ago there were a couple of people who apparently talked to the little person in their phone and got directions to my house and ended up on some dirt road back in the middle of nowhere uh, thinking that uh, thinking that their pastor lived, I don't know, out in Cowfield somewhere. So now, you know, the, the GPS, it gets confused sometimes, but GPS has absolutely no shot 
of getting you where you want to go unless you tell it where you want to go. If you don't have a final destination, if you don't tell it exactly where you want it to go, you have no hope. Can you imagine turning on your phone and saying, um, hey, take me somewhere. By the way, I tried this. If you say, take me somewhere, that, you know, Siri, she'll, she'll respond and she'll say, where do you want to go? And you say, oh, I don't know, I'll tell you when we get there. She gets real snippy. So I wouldn't advise trying that. Now, some of y'all are like reaching for your phone. You're trying to be all quiet and do that. Don't do that in here. Try that when you go home. But I wouldn't advise it because she gets, uh, she gets all snippy. The fact is, you have to know where you're going before you can get directions. You can't know how to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going. And that's why Jesus told us this story that we have in front of us this morning. As I said, over these past few weeks, we've been looking through these eight stories that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. Actually, when I call them stories, they're a special kind of story that's called a parable. These parables... Jesus is telling His disciples about what His kingdom is going to look like from the time of His resurrection until His second coming. And this morning, He's, he's moved us as He's walked us through these eight different, or through these parables up to this point. He's moved us from a global perspective down to a local church perspective, down to an individual salvation perspective. And this morning, He's going to tell us about the future. He's going to tell us where all this is headed. In other words, what he's doing is he's plugging the destination into the GPS for us. So with that as background, let's go ahead and read this parable that Jacob read to us. Let's go ahead and read that again. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 47. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad, threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I imagine that some of you in here, if I was to ask you if you're a fisherman, I believe some of you would poke your chest out and say, yeah, I'm a fisherman. Now, a fisherman has all kinds of different definitions, right? Some of you that would call yourself fishermen, you fish from the bank and do more snoozing than fishing, right? Some of you might do that kind of fishing. Some of you might get, you might have a boat and you might go out in the boat and do that kind of fishing. Some of you might get really exotic and you go down to the, to the Gulf or somewhere like that and you, or go out off Virginia Beach and you rent a, a Big boat, and you go out there and do that kind of fishing. Well, when Jesus is talking about fishing here, you get those pictures out of your mind because the kind of fishing that he's talking about is probably illegal. And if you've ever done this kind of fishing before, I would not recommend um, admitting to it today. The kind of fishing that he was talking about was dragnet fishing. Now, dragnet fishing, they would, what they would do, they had a couple different ways that they would do it, but the main way that they would do it was they'd take a net that was about anywhere up to like a half mile long, and they would string this net between two boats. 
On the bottom of the net, there were uh, different kinds of weights, like lead weights or something like that, and then up at the top of the net were floats. So this net would drop down toward the bottom of the sea. And these boats would drag this net, hence the name dragnet, right? Real technical. But they would drag this net all through the sea until it was full. And then when it was full, they would drag this net up onto the shore. Now, here's the thing about dragnet fishing, and the reason, probably the reason that it's illegal in most places. The thing about dragnet fishing is you can imagine that anything that's in the water is going to get caught up in that net, right? So it's not just what you're fishing for. You're going to catch everything. Fish you like, fish you don't like, edible fish, inedible fish, and that's what happens. That's what's happening there in verse 48. Once they get this full net to the shore, they had to spend time sorting out the good fish from the bad fish. Now that's pretty easy to see when we're, when we're reading this, but there's something, Jesus puts an interesting little twist on it that we don't necessarily see in our English translations. These, these, these books of the Bible were originally written in Greek, and we don't necessarily see the little twist that Jesus is putting on it here. Verse 8, verse 48 says that they sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. That, that word bad, there has brought up a lot of debate amongst different folks. Some folks have tried to say that the bad fish were the fish that didn't fit in with the Jewish dietary laws. So they would throw them out because they didn't fit with the Jewish dietary laws. There were other folks that said, well, the bad fish were the ones they couldn't get any money for in the market, so they'd throw them out. Well, that's not what this word means. This word, it, it carries the idea of being dead. It carries the idea of rottenness. It carries the idea of corruption. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is a bunch of dead fish mixed in with living fish. The living ones were put safely into containers and the rotten, dead, decaying fish were thrown away. They were disposed of. Now that kind of changes the picture, doesn't it? And then Jesus, uh, Jesus sets the hook here. Come on, that was better than that. Jesus sets the hook, you know, fishing. Man. We need some coffee, don't we? But Jesus sets the hook here with this story in verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. He's saying that this picture is what it's going to look like at the end of this age. That's the point. That's the whole point of this story that he's telling. Remember that parables are stories with one specific point that Jesus is using all of these uh, all of these familiar surroundings to drive home one particular point. And that's the point that he's driving here. In other words, Jesus is saying that one day, final judgment is coming. Hebrews 9.27 puts it like this. It is appointed to man to die once, and after that, the judgment. So with all that being said, what is it exactly that Jesus is teaching us here? The first thing that Jesus is teaching us here is that a separation is coming. You know, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. We all long for justice, don't we? 
we, we see the wrongs in the world around us. You know, our hometown heroes that are here with us this morning, you see them more than the rest of us do. You, you see that, that peaceful, uh, shiny veneer of our community peeled back and you see the layer that's underneath it. And it makes us long for justice. It makes us long for things to be made right. When we see children neglected and abused, when we see the scourge of drug and alcohol abuse in our area, when we see families destroyed by adultery and pornography, when we see hunger and heartache and sickness and disease, when we see lies and deceit and slander and treachery, when we see all of those things, it makes us long for the world to be made right. We long for a time when everything will be fixed. We long for justice. In this story, Jesus is telling us that one day, one day, one day, justice will finally be served. All unfairness is going to be exposed for what it is. All of the wrongs will be made right. All of the evil will be made righteous. All of the wrongs will be made right. And in order for that to happen, all who have rejected Christ as Lord and Master and Savior will be cast out. Now notice in this parable, there's only two categories, aren't there? When the net is full and this time of separation happens, there are only the two categories of good fish and bad fish. Or as verse 49 further describes it, evil and righteous. There's no gray area there, is there? There's no in-between. One day, in a time and place of His choosing, God will issue final judgment on all humanity. More specifically, He'll, he'll issue final judgment on you and me. It's going to come swiftly. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come when nobody expects it. And at that point, there's not going to be any appeal. There's not going to be any parole. There's not going to be any second chance. His judgment will be final, and His final judgment is sealed for all eternity. Now, our parable doesn't talk about what happens to the good fish. We have the rest of Scripture to find out what happens to the good fish. Instead, what our parable focuses on is what happens to the rotten dead fish. It says that the rotten dead fish were removed from amongst them. In other words, all evil, all injustice, all hatred, all pain, all sickness, all deceit, all sin will be removed and permanently cast into a place called hell. Now, um, if you're looking for a complete description of what hell is and all of that, you're not going to find it in this parable. That's not the point of this parable to describe what hell really is. It's not complete, but it is terrifying. His description is terrifying. His description in this passage is terrifying enough that I want to make sure that each one of us in here knows how to be counted with the good fish instead of discarded with the bad fish. Jesus is teaching us that a permanent eternal separation is coming. 
Next thing he teaches us is that the stand is the standard that he uses to make that separation. Evil will be separated from the righteous. Bad will be separated from the good. That means that at the final judgment, God will cast bad and evil people into hell. That's what it says here. That's a terrifying thought, but it's not a real personal thought, is it? It's not a real personal thought because evil and bad, thats those are vague terms, especially in our world today. We can always find somebody who's worse than us, can't we? That person that cut me off in the line at Walmart, they can be worse than me. We can always find somebody who's worse than we are. We can always find somebody to point our finger at, you know, say those people are bad, those people are evil. Not me. I'm not. I I do good stuff, right? Listen to how Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, clears all that up for us. The Bible says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How in the world can the Bible say that? I mean, doesn't God take into account all of the good stuff that I do? Doesn't God take into account all of the acts of service and all of the nice things? I mean, goodness, you know, mowed the neighbor's grass. That's a good thing. That ought to be on my good list, right? Doesn't God take that stuff into account? I'm a good neighbor. I serve people. I try to be kind. People would describe me as a kind person. I'm a good husband. Don't answer, Miranda. I'm a good husband. I'm a, you know, I love my kids. I, I love my parents. I give to charity. I'm even a church member. Surely those things count on my good list, right? Surely we can list those as good things. That counts for something, doesn't it? Listen to what the Bible says about all of our good works that are done in and of ourselves. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says that all of our best attempts at righteousness, our very best attempts at righteousness, are as a disgusting garment in His sight, as filthy rags before the Lord. In other words, in and of ourselves, the very best that we can hope to accomplish is being offensive to God. So why is that? Because God is holy. God is perfect. And God requires that that all who are in His presence have to have His same kind of holiness, have to have His purity, have to have His perfection. His holiness and perfection is the standard. That's the measuring rod, not how good and bad, not how good or bad we are compared to somebody else. No, that's not the standard. His holiness and righteousness and perfection is the standard. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, the problem is not that we're not good enough. The problem is not that we need to stack up more good stuff 
in comparison with other people's good stuff. The problem is not that our scales are out of whack and we just have to have more good stuff weighing down than bad stuff. No, the problem is that apart from Christ, we're dead and rotten. Remember the word that's translated bad in verse 48 describes deadness and rottenness and corruption. That describes each of us apart from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, in our parable, they weren't separating the fish according to size. They weren't separating the fish according to how tasty they were. They weren't separating the fish according to how much money they could get for them in the market. No, the standard was simple. They separated the living fish from the dead and rotten fish. And that's going to be the standard when God issues His final judgment. The only standard is are you dead or alive? Are you dead in your trespasses and sins? Or are you alive in Christ? Or to put it more simply, are you saved? See, at God's final judgment, there will be a great separation. Some will be separated to eternal life with Him. Some will be separated to eternal wrath in hell. The standard for that separation will be whether you're dead in your trespasses and sins or whether you're alive in Christ, which takes us to the greatest thing that Jesus is teaching us in this parable. The greatest thing that Jesus is teaching us in this parable is He's teaching us our desperate need for salvation. We've seen how the bad fish are separated out and thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And hopefully I made it clear that bad isn't just talking about bad behavior here. No, the bad fish are bad because they're dead. Nobody goes to hell because they're bad. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a whole lot of so-called good people that will go to hell. People will go to hell not because they're bad. People will go to hell because they're dead. They're spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And that's what Jesus means by bad fish. So what did He mean by good fish? We've already seen that Romans chapter 3, verses 10-12 through tells us that nobody is good. Nobody is righteous. No one does good. Not even one was what the Apostle Paul said there in Romans chapter 3. Later on in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if no one is good in and of themselves, who are these good fish? I understand that. You need to know a little bit about that word that Jesus uses for good here. When he uses that word for good, he's not just talking about good works. He's not talking about something externally good. Now, these fish weren't behaviorally better than the bad fish. The word that Jesus uses here is talking about their essence. It's talking about what they were created to be. He's using it to describe their inherent beauty. In other words, these fish are good because something outside of them created them as good. Earlier, I read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But fortunately, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave it off at verse 2. 
Listen to how he continues the rest of it, starting in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not too long after Jesus told this parable to His disciples, one of those disciples that he was telling this to would betray him. Jesus was carried away. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was mocked. He was spit on. The only truly good and sinless man who ever walked the face of the earth was nailed to a cruel wooden cross on a hill called Calvary. The the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, took the wrath that you and I deserve. The Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin for us. He's the one who took the death that we deserve and He rose again and He lives today so that we can have new life in Him, so that we can be the good fish, so that we can be living fish. He took all of the badness and all of the deadness and all of the stink and all of the rot so that we could be clothed in His righteousness and goodness and newness and life. In other words, Jesus took hell for us on the cross Jesus wept and gnashed His teeth in your place and in mine. And He rose again and He lives today to give you His goodness and His righteousness that we can't have on our own. You see, the question that's in front of you this morning is not, will there be a final judgment? No, Jesus makes that clear. At the time and place of God's choosing, your time for choosing will be over. Whether it's at your death or whether it's at Jesus' return, at that time, your your time for choosing will be over. Your eternal destiny will be sealed and you will face judgment. Are you dead in your trespasses and sins? Or are you alive in Christ? That's the question for each of us this morning. See, those are the only two possible verdicts. The standard has been set, and even now the net is being drawn. Now is the time to trust Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. Today is the day to be made alive in Him. Today, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. See, the good news is, all that needed to be done for your salvation was already done by Christ on the cross. When in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all that needed to be done for your salvation was done. There's no list of works attached to that. All you have to do is trust Him. And this is how the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, that, that God raised Him from the dead. And when you do that, you will be saved. If you've never done that before, will you do that this morning? 
You know, the Bible says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. 